Let's turn on our Bibles to the book of Hebrews this morning, chapter 10. Sunday morning we're studying the book of Hebrews together. We come to chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to them and get their attention. It's always great to hear the Word of God. It becomes doubly great when I can read the Word with my own eyes as well. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, we want everyone to own a Bible. God wants everyone to own a Bible. So make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your heart of love behind every word and every jot and every tittle, and every thought and every precept. Thank you, Lord, for this passage. Thank you for what it reveals to us about you, reveals to us about your Son, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for how it's intended to enrich our understanding of you and thus our relationship with you. And so we pray for a work of your Holy Spirit now through your word to teach us and instruct us and to have accomplished in each one of our lives the very things this passage is in your book to accomplish. Freshly fill us right now with your Holy Spirit and a sensitivity to your Holy Spirit, Lord, that is proportional and is appropriate for your word. Speak to us, Lord, your servants here. And we ask these things of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In coming to chapter 10, verse 19, and on through to the end of the book of Hebrews, we come to what is really the final division of the book. From chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through to chapter 10, verse 18, the writer of the book of Hebrews, by the Holy Spirit, has laid down some of the deepest and the densest uh, doctrine to be found in all of the Bible. It is amazing. But he does that in order to lay a foundation for what he now wants to say out of the basis of that knowledge. And even though his uh, thinking and even uh, is is very very dense and very very deep. The point that he's making is a very very simple one, and the point that he's making is that Jesus is better. And those Christians and Christians today, that's a message that we need to hear and we need to understand. And the writer has laid out how it is that Jesus is better than the Old Testament prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the high priest. Uh, he's a better high priest than Aaron. He's better than Abraham. And that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant for a relationship with God. And this group of Jewish believers that he's writing to are being tempted to abandon their relationship with God through Jesus Christ, return to the Old Covenant, and try to reestablish a relationship with God on the basis of works and try to establish a righteousness before God on the basis of religious works, which is impossible 
to do. Now, it's very, very important to understand that first word of verse 19 as it introduces the entire section of the book. And the first word is the word therefore, because that word therefore is intended to communicate something very important to us. If you've never heard it before, many of us have, everyone ought to hear it once and then remember it for the rest of our lives as Christians. And that is whenever we run into a therefore in the Bible, we want to stop and ask ourselves, what is it therefore? And what is true of the Bible is really true of anything where someone is speaking or writing and they have laid out this long case for something and then finally they say, therefore, all of a sudden everybody, whatever their level of interest up to that point, their ears perk up and they realize, all right, now the person is going to bottom line this. He or she has said all of these things because this is the point they now want to make. And that's what we come to in the book of of Hebrews. He said all of these things concerning Christ in order to come to this place now to give us the conclusion of why he has said all these things and then why all of it applies to our life and to our relationship with the Lord. And he's going to make these applications, these therefores, all the way to the end of the book. We notice that the writer begins this section, this last section of the book, with a series of three exhortations, all of the, each of them in the form of a let us statement. Those two words, let us, repeated three times in these few verses that we've read. In verse 22, he writes, let us draw near. In verse 23, let us hold fast. And then in verse 24, let us consider one another. And we'll take those in order here this morning, beginning with let us draw near in verses 19 through 22. He says, let us draw near to God by boldly entering the holiest. Why can we boldly enter into the holiest, he tells us? It is because of the blood of Jesus. And because he has provided us with a new and a living way, verse 20, through the veil that is his flesh. You say, what in the world does that mean? Well, when the writer says that he has provided us with a new way to God, it means it's a new way independent of the Old Covenant and the Old Testament. When the writer says that Christ has provided us with a living way to God, it speaks of his resurrection. All of the sacrifices of the Old old Covenant, when those sacrifices died, they stayed dead. When Jesus died upon the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, this was the first sacrifice that was raised from the dead in order to provide us with a living way to God. And all, and that is what's being communicated there. And then he tells us, having done so, we have access to God, to the holiest, that is to heaven itself, not just the holy of holies in the temple, but what it was a model of, what it represented, heaven itself, and, and God has given us that ability to draw boldly enter into the holiness through the veil of his flesh, that is, Jesus' flesh. And that is, just as the high priest had to access the holy of holies in the temple by passing through this veil or this great curtain that hung between the holy place and the holy of holies, Jesus' death the sacrifice of his body was required in order to provide us with access, again, not to the holy of holies, not to the model of heaven, but to heaven itself. And that is the great point that the writer is making here, that through Jesus' death, the sacrifice of his body, he has provided us with an astonishing access to God. It is very significant and important to remember that at the moment that Jesus hung on that cross and died by 
giving up and dismissing his spirit, he did so with the words and with the prayer, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And in that instant that Jesus died upon the cross, just a stone's throw away from Calvary where Herod's temple uh, stood, the Father then reached down into that temple in Jerusalem and he tore the veil in that temple from the top to the bottom. What was that, that great veil? It was essentially a curtain. And according to the Jewish Mishnah, it was 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide. It was as thick as a, the palm of a man's hand, somewhere between Uh, four inches and six inches thick. It was woven of fine linen with threads of blue and purple and scarlet, all symbolizing beautiful truths concerning Jesus. And it hung within the interior of the temple, separating the part of the temple known as the holy place from another section of the interior of the temple known as the most holy place. The temple and Within the temple itself and also its grounds and all of its courtyards was, in a sense, simply a series of obstructions, a series of walls, a series of obstacles between God, uh, between man and between God. And as a person would progress from the outer courts of, uh, of the temple grounds and then to the temple itself, to the holy place at the interior of the temple and ultimately to the most holy place or the holy of holies itself. If you were a Gentile, you could go into the court that was furthest away from the temple. A Gentile is a non-Jew, by the way. If you were a Gentile, you could come to the court of the Gentiles, go to the closest wall of that court, to the temple, but you had to stop there. You could not go any further uh, than that unless you were a Jew. After the court of the Gentiles, there was the court of the women. And if you were a Jewish woman, you could go that far. But then there was another wall, and only Jewish men could go beyond that wall. And then beyond that was the temple itself, and only a priest or a Levite could enter in to the first of those two inner chambers that made up the interior of the temple. That was called the holy place. And at the far end of that room was another room called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. And separating the two rooms was this great veil. And the Holy of Holies was called the Holy of Holies because it represented the presence of God. It represented the place that God had chosen to meet with man. And then, in order to emphasize the holiness of God, only one man in the whole wide world could enter into that holy of holies. And he could only enter in on one day, the Day of Atonement. And he could only enter in after he had offered a sacrifice for his own sin. And the only one that could do that was a Jewish high priest who was a descendant of Aaron, the brother of Moses himself. And the high priest would enter on that Day of Atonement through that curtain on behalf of all of the people, and he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice upon the mercy seat that covered the Ark of the Covenant, and then he would sprinkle blood before the Ark of the Covenant for the covering of their sin, and then he would depart that room. And for the next 364 days out of the year, that Holy of Holies sat silent. It sat dark and quiet and completely undisturbed. The term veil suggests something that separates or conceals or hides. And everything about the temple was a reminder of the fact that sin separates mankind from God. It was intended to do that. And then now God reaches down at the death of His Son and He proceeded to tear that 
veil in two. And it would have absolutely boggled the mind of the Jewish religious leaders who were at the temple at that time ministering and witnessing it with their own eyes. Concerning the Holy of Holies, nothing was to ever be moved. Nothing was to be touched in there. You weren't even supposed to look into the Holy of Holies, to gaze upon the Holy of Holies, unless you were the high priest, and that but for a few minutes on one day out of the whole year. And here now is the veil torn in two, and it hangs awkwardly from its hooks of gold and its clasp of silvers, and it leaves the Holy of Holies completely open and exposed to anyone who would not only care to look inside, but even to come inside themselves. And in the tearing of the veil, the Father was communicating that the Old Covenant had now wonderfully imperfectly been fulfilled in the death of Jesus and that the old covenant now had fully and completely given way to a new covenant. And that torn veil cried out one single great word to sinful man in that hour and all the way through human history into this room today. And the single great word is the word access that access to God is now available to every single human being in this room and in the whole wide world. No more court of the Gentiles, no more court of the women, no more human priests, no more high priests. Now anyone and everyone, whether Jew or Gentile or rich or poor or famous or anonymous or powerful or powerless or smart or not so smart, everyone can pray to Him and praise the Lord anytime, anywhere they are. And that any of us can now have a relationship with God that is as close and as intimate as we want it to be. Do you realize that the relationship that you have with God this morning is the relationship you have chosen, that I have chosen? It is completely in our court. We have the relationship with God, the intimacy and closeness of relationship that we want. The Bible says that if we draw nigh to Him, that is to God, God will draw nigh to us. We determine the depth and the beauty and the intimacy of that relationship. And notice, because of the blood, because of the life, the sacrifice of Jesus, we don't, not only, we don't, He didn't pay that price in order for us to have access to the Holy of Holies in some ancient temple, as wonderful as that was. But He has provided us with an access to the very heaven that it represented to the holiest. I say praise the Lord for that this morning. No Old Testament, no Old Covenant worshiper would have ever been bold enough to even think about entering into the holy of holies in the temple. They wouldn't have done it. They wouldn't have even thought of doing it. But because of the precious and unique and priceless blood of Christ, we can boldly enter into God's presence in heaven in prayer and in worship any time we want. That's amazing. I'm a Gentile. I'm a non-Jew. I'm a very high category of Gentile, being half Scottish and half Irish, <laughs> with my friend and Pastor Tom Hinman. I just kid you, you're whatever your heritage is, but I'm a Gentile. Most of us in this room are a Gentile. 
This is all I've ever known. From the day I gave my life to the Lord, all I've ever known is that I could stop in the aisle of a supermarket. I can do it while I'm driving. I can do it while I'm walking. I can do it on my knees. I can do it standing. I can do it with my head on the pillow. All I've ever known is that I can open up my mouth and begin to praise the Lord and to pray and to pray to Him and to know that my prayer, because of Jesus, I have, that prayer is going into the very heaven of heavens itself before the presence of God. You think about that. God Almighty. the creator of the heavens and the earth and a heavenly scene that's so amazing and Jesus in his transfigured glory up there that even when John, the apostle John, sees Jesus in his glory and the revelation when he's taken up into the third heaven, he begins to tremble and fall down on his face. That's the access that I have as a Christian and that you have. It's not access to some great politician or some great historic figure or to some singer or some actor or some entertainer or some powerful personality. We have immediate and intimate and instant access to God Almighty, the God of the Bible. And I would never know to be as humbled by that access as a Gentile, apart from the Old Testament Scriptures and apart from a book like the book of Hebrews that gives me something of an education of the Old Covenant and how complicated and how comparatively distant and how in some ways comparatively impersonal that relationship with God was. And as I read the Old Testament and I see all of that and I see in comparison to what I know and what I have and what I have experienced with God since 1980, I stand in awe of the access that the shed blood of Christ has provided both me and you as a Christian with. Notice how we're to draw near to the Lord. He tells us in verse 22, sometimes you see movies. Sometimes you might even read about it. But, you know, when you approach kings and queens today, if you are ever given the opportunity, you will be coached for that. <laughs> you don't just walk in and go, hey, bro. You walk in, you're told you don't talk until you're talked to. <laughs> you kneel here, you bow here, you curtsy here, and when you exit, you don't turn your back on the king. You exit out walking backwards and all these silly little rules that kings and queens come up with out of their own insecurity. And God isn't concerned about any of that kind of superficial nonsense. But he is a great king. And we approach a great throne when we approach him. And so he tells us that when we do, we're to do so with a true heart. It is a sincere heart, a genuine heart toward him. No acting and certainly no hypocrisy. We're to do it in the full assurance of faith. We draw near to God with the absolute certainty that all of this that is ours in Christ is true and that when we come before him in prayer and in praise, that we receive a gracious reception from Him when we do, that He loves our company and that He loves to talk with us. 
And then we're to approach having our hearts sprinkled from an evil or a guilty conscience. That is, we come before God and we approach Him with the absolute confidence that our sins are forgiven. We don't bring the baggage of that into that relationship because of the greatness of Jesus' sacrifice. And then he says, having our bodies, speaking of our outward life, washed with pure water. And this speaks of holiness or practical holiness in our lives or sanctification, where through the washing of water by the Word of God in the hands of the Holy Spirit, who himself is likened unto living water, our lives are kept holy and, and uh, we approach the Lord with a holy life. There's that recognition that Jesus died on the cross not only to save us out of unholiness, but to save us into a holy life, a Christ-like life. And only Jesus provides such a confident boldness to sinful man in a relationship with a holy God. We can draw near to God. We can talk with God. We can fellowship with God any time, day or night, anywhere that we are in the whole wide world. Now notice the second encouragement or the second exhortation in verse 23. He says, let us hold fast. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And the word hold fast there means to grab a hold of something with your tightest grip, with the idea of never letting that go. And what are we grasping with, with that kind of firmness? He says their confession of hope, their profession of faith in Jesus for salvation. And why do we hold on to that profession of faith in Jesus for salvation. Remember, they're being tempted to move away from it. We do so because He who promised is faithful. In other words, because what God has promised is going to happen. God just doesn't make promises. He also keeps them. And that this way of salvation that we have in Christ is as sure as His Word. And He cannot lie. The Bible teaches that not only Will God not lie, but that God cannot lie? The third exhortation of the third encouragement, let us consider one another, verse 24 and 25. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love in good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And here we have an exhortation concerning Christian fellowship, that we are to consider one another as Christians. We're to notice other people in the body of Christ. And not only are we to notice them, but we are to, gi- we are to give some thought to other people. <laughs> it's worth considering in the selfishness and the self-focus of the culture that we live in. The kingdom of God is entirely different from the world that we live in. And so we're to give some thought to others. For what purpose? It tells us in verse 24, to stir up love. That's the stir up, that stir up is in the new King James. I think in the old King James it talks about provoking one another to love. Like that word provoke. Because that's the strength of the word that's used here. Talk about stir up to me, and I'm thinking about Lipton tea or something, you know, with adding some sugar to the... But provoke is the word. It's the strength of the word. So we're to consider others for the purpose of stirring up love, to provoke expressions of love for one another, and then also to stir up good works. I think it's interesting to notice that love and good works need to be stirred up. Even among Christians. It doesn't just happen naturally. The natural tendency or the natural uh, flow of things is away from love. To become impatient with one another. To even come to dislike one another. Or to become bitter toward one another. The whole flow of the world. Or to cease to serve 
one another. Or say, I won't even let that enter into my thinking. So that love and good work, it needs to be stirred up, even among Christians. It doesn't just happen. Well, how in the world can I provoke other Christians to love in good works? I think the simplest answer is by simply doing those things myself. By coming to church with a heart of love for the body of Christ and a heart of love for the Christians who are going to be at that church that I am attending. Someone may say, I don't have that kind of love for God's people. Where do I get it? Ask God for it. And he'll give it to you. He has that kind of love for his people. And he will impart it to us. And there's nothing wrong with saying that to God. God, I do not have the same enthusiasm for your people (laughs) that you have. And I certainly don't have the same love for them. Would you produce that in my life? But you ought to mean it when you pray it. Because he will produce it. But there will be some breaking that occurs as a part of, of producing that. He has a way of giving us a deep, deep appreciation and love for his people. How do I, not only is it important in doing these things to come to church with a heart that's filled with love, but then to come to church and do good works to serve in some way, maybe greeting people as they come in. That's a good place to have love happening and good works. Or maybe to be a part of a worship team or part of the children's ministry and all that goes on there. Or to be a part of hosting a home fellowship or uh, overseeing a home fellowship. All these different ways that we have to serve within a local church. But, you know, not all provoking to good works happens under some kind of established ministry within a church. Sometimes it can be just a person being sensitive to the Holy Spirit in their own life, and they come into church and they say, Lord, I'm yours, I'm your instrument, I want to provoke to good works by doing good works myself. I trust you to lead me in the good things that I'm to do with people and in my interaction with people at the church today. It's fascinating, I think, to realize that when Jesus in his public ministry, one of the things that he was known for is that when he came into any room where there were other people, that his eye and attention went immediately to the person with the greatest need. He was known for that. That's a beautiful characteristic. This characteristic so mocked his life. It was so consistently a part of his life that the Jewish religious leaders who considered themselves his enemy even used it as an attempt to trap him. And they knew that Jesus, whenever he was in a city, that he would go to synagogue on the Sabbath day. And so on the Sabbath day in the city of Capernaum, They knew Jesus would be there, and so they put a man in the room who had a withered hand. And they had no question in their mind that Jesus would notice him there. They didn't put a neon lights or spotlight on him or anything. They knew he comes in, he's going to spot this guy. The only question in their mind is, will he heal this man on the Sabbath day? And Jesus comes into the room and his attention is immediately drawn to that man with the greatest need. That's a fabulous characteristic to have as a part of a person's life. And it's wonderful to realize, whether you're in a home fellowship or in a church like this or anywhere that you might be, where we've come together in this kind of a way to realize That if you sit here and you say, I know I have the greatest need of anyone in this room. 
then you will have Jesus' first attention. And he will then minister to you and your need. And then now you're not the neediest. So he'll move to the next person and the next person and the next person. And this is why it's important for the teaching to be long enough for God to get to all of the needs in the room. I'm doing what I can. But that's what he does. And that's what his Holy Spirit will do within us as well. So often we can come to church without any thought for anybody else. And then we get upset that nobody came up and served me. Nobody came up and shook my hand. Don't you have two hands to shake hands with? It's the selfishness of the culture. It's a part of us. It's a part of us that we have to fight. That's why this passage is like this in the Bible. There are so many people, more than ever in my lifetime, at least that I can recognize, so many lonely and needy people in the world today. Because life is hard. And I'm glad we don't have the junior hires or the senior hires in the room during this service. They're in their own room. I want them to enjoy that season in their life. Ignorance is bliss. But this world is a fallen world. And this world is a broken place. And there's a lot of hurt and there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of need that even becomes cumulative in a person's life. The culture is never more lonely than than, than I've ever seen it, never more than it is now. We've got all these things, and they've got the phone in here and transfixed on the phone, transfixed on the phone. You sound like an old fuddy-duddy, but it wouldn't matter if I was 22. I've always been old. I've always been old. I was old in junior high. And then the computer and the earplug and the iPod and the this and the thing and the world gets smaller and smaller and smaller until there's this little tiny life. And then when something breaks and some crisis occurs, a person looks around for meaningful relationship in their life and they realize, I don't have any. The best I can do is Google it. And we're not made to live that way. We're not made to live alone. We're made to love God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. That's how we were made. Not to be caught up in this unholy trinity of I, me, and my... And then one day, a person realizes this is all I've invested in my whole life. The bottom falls out in their life. They're empty and they're lonely and they're filled with need. And what do they figure? I can't go to the left. I can't go to the right. I've burned bridges here. I've burned bridges there. I've done this and that. I know what I'll do. I'll go to church. And the idea is that if they go to a church and leave a church lonely and unhelped and friendless, that then there's no hope for them. I've gone to the last place, and if this place doesn't offer me hope, then there's no hope for me in all of the world. It's good to let our eyes and our hearts be directed by the Holy Spirit 
to needs in a church and to people in need of love and in need of encouragement. I'm going to go from preaching to meddling, but I'm not thinking about anybody in particular because so many of us do it, and I'm guilty of it myself. But if there are four or six or eight of you and you've known each other for 30 years and after every service at this church you all gather around one another for 45 minutes until the place is empty and never put your focus on need outside of that group It's good to stop and just ask, Lord, would you take my eyes and you take my life and help me to notice what you're noticing and use me the way that you want to use me today. We gravitate toward our comfort zones, and we do need to maintain relationships within a body. But but when it stays there and it never moves outside of that, then that becomes a problem. Instead of the same people all the time to then just allow my gaze to go over to the person that's standing against the wall in the fellowship hall. And by the way, if you're visiting us today, I'm not beating this body. This is a very loving body at all. I'm just giving some food for thought that all of us need to hear. And to look out and to see someone that's standing against a wall in a fellowship hall with a cup of coffee in their hands and to see for five minutes or ten minutes or twenty minutes nobody's gotten to them or out into one of the courtyards or into the main courtyard or the side entry courtyards. Because, again, if a person stands there and comes to a church and church is like a completely new experience for more and more people, they already feel awkward. And so you stand there for 20 minutes and you're as awkward as can be and you're kind of shifting and all of this and everything. And if nobody comes and talks to that person, and sometimes I'm talking to a person at the back door or some other situation, and I see that person in a corner of my eye and I'm thinking, would somebody get to that person? They figure, oh, there's no, there's no hope for me or relationship or change even in a church, and they head off. This church is as much your church as it is my church, but only within the sense that it's neither of our churches. <laughs> it belongs to God. But the effectiveness of it, the success of it, it lies within all of us, our place in that. Now, I don't want you to get all weird after the service and shun all of your friends. So you heard what he said. And then there's one guy standing against the wall in the fellowship hall, and he wants to be alone, and everybody's looking at him. <laughs> I'm just planting a seed that's biblical. And to let God just kind of work it in our lives as just to become our regular expectation of ourselves whenever we assemble together with God's people. It's also interesting to note that the emphasis here is not on what a believer gets out, uh, gets from the assembling together of the saints, but rather on what we can contribute to the fellowship. And I'm so thankful that when I first came to know the Lord, the Lord got me busy serving almost immediately on day one in my Christian life. I, look, I walked in the church. I said, I can't believe a place like this exists. What can I do to help? Like week three. God was doing such great things in my life. And I'll tell you that staying busy about the things of the Lord, not only has it kept me out of all kinds of trouble, but it has been very, very important in keeping me and anyone from slipping in to a selfish life or a critical life 
toward the rest of the body of Christ or toward other members of the church or into a lazy, lukewarm Christian walk. Church is a place to worship the Lord and to learn His Word. It is all of that, but it's also a place to serve God and to serve other people. I'll never forget because I was at a a senior pastor's conference once and one of the teachers was teaching and he gave an illustration, true story, that so perfectly encapsulated every variation of the story that it was like a bullet that went right into my brain. He's a pastor of a very large church and he went to the back door after the teaching of the service in order to meet with people and, and to fellowship and, and, and to enjoy one another's company. And as he's at the back door, somebody came up to him, a man came up to him at the back door and said, I just came to see what you had to offer. That is so pig-headed, filthy, ugly... in a Christian, and we ought to know that. We're not picking out hotel rooms or restaurants. It's the body of Christ. I came to see what you had to offer. The pastor, before he could catch himself, sometimes you say things too fast. You think better, you'd hold it back. But sometimes you speak fast and the Lord is in it. And he looked that man in the eye and says, what do you have to offer? That's just what that man needed to hear. Because all of life out there, there's a tendency in our flesh to go in that direction. To where every relationship in our life, every place we put our time, everywhere we invest ourselves, that in every circumstance of our life, we weigh it by the fact that we get more out of it than we have to put in it. And we consider ourselves a success when we look at every relationship in our life, every business contact in our life, every circumstance in our life, and I can look and say, I am getting more out of that than I am putting into it, and I'll pat myself on the back and say that I'm brilliant for living such a life. And then to carry that over into the body of Christ where I can then look at this, this kingdom of God, this something that's entirely different, and choose a church or stay in a church on the basis of the fact that I get far more out of it than I ever put into it. And it's an ugly old thing. And until there's a passage like this or someone makes a comment like that, we can go our whole life completely blind to that kind of selfishness and that kind of bondage that marks our life. What's required in order to accomplish all of this sanctified provocation of love and good works? He tells us in verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. And assembling together with God's people like we're doing here this morning. That's always important. But it's especially important when Christians are in the middle of trial and in the middle of the kind of trial and decision-making, bad decision-making, that these Jewish Christians are about to make. And so we desperately need to be in fellowship with other Christians to be built up and edified always, but especially during times of trial. I remember when I was a new Christian, I've told this story a couple of times, but you know, listen, you pastor in the same place since 1985, you're going to repeat stories. I was a new Christian, and I'd been raised in a home. My mother, my mother suffered a lot of things. 
She's in heaven freed from all of it. But she really suffered from, I won't say it was the greatest thing because there was a handful of things that were in this category, but severe depression. You don't understand it as a kid. It's just, it's just what your life is. It's what your home is. And I vowed as a young man, getting out of high school, and I thought to myself, the rest of my life I am never going to put myself in a, around a depressed person or a depressed environment ever again. Not going to do it. Now that's how I felt then in my immaturity. I'm not talking about how I feel now. I feel completely different now. And a funny thing happened, and I kept my vow to myself. The funny thing happened is I come to know the Lord. Isn't everything supposed to get better when you come to know the Lord? And I found on Wednesdays, when there was the midweek Bible study, I would get depressed. Not because of the Wednesday night Bible study, it would just come upon me. This very strong feeling of melancholy. Not on Monday, not on Tuesday, not on Thursday, not on Friday, on Wednesday. And I'd come home from work and it's nothing like me. And I'd come home from work and I just want to go into the bedroom and crawl into the bed and go to sleep. Weird. It was crazy. And it was spiritual warfare, but I was too young in the Lord to recognize it for that. All I knew is that I did not want to go to church. I didn't want to go anywhere. But church was what was planned on the Wednesday. And it was the devil just trying to take me out early in my Christian walk. And then one thing or another would happen. Of course, the Lord was in all of it. And I'd go to church, and then there would be the prayer, and there would be the worship and the teaching of the Word of God and the fellowship, and it would be just what I needed. And this thing, whatever it was, I know what it is now, whatever it was, it would lift off of me. And that assembling together of the saints. And if I had heeded that temptation to withdraw from Christian fellowship on the Wednesday, still go on the Sunday, but now I've given it a foothold. And it's not going to be content to stay there. And if I had heeded that temptation instead of obeying God's exhortation here to not forsake the assembling together of the saints, I don't know what would have happened to me. I don't know what kind of man would be standing before you today, but I do know I wouldn't be standing before you today because I would be a completely different human being than the one that I am that has come as a result of Christian fellowship. Never, ever obey the suggestion or the temptation or the feeling to separate yourself from church fellowship. That suggestion never comes from God. And we need each other in the body of Christ in order to maintain perspective in trials, in order to keep from becoming lukewarm, in order to stir up love and good works in one another's life. I've always liked the decision by the translators related to this verse to their using of the word assembling to describe the meeting of God's people as opposed to to using the word gathering. I mean, we could read it there in verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, or we could say not forsaking the gathering of ourselves together. And it seems like they're synonymous to the same words. They're they're equal, but they're not equal. The word assembly is a superior word to the word gathering. I'll illustrate it by getting you to think about a bicycle. I could put a big tarp down on the platform up here, the stage, and put it over the carpet and then bring a bicycle out to you in all of its various parts, large and small, disassembled, and put it upon the tarp. And there you have a gathered bicycle. 
Now, an assembled bicycle is something vastly superior to that gathered bicycle because you can do something with an assembled bicycle. And when a church is more than just people gathering, but it's actually an assembly that God is a part of in our lives, and we come together with the idea of provoking one another to love and to good works, that is a church that he can use for something in a way that he can't with those who are just merely gathered. And he will use that kind of a church in, in that in that kind of, uh, of a way as each of us loves one another, as we take our place in Christian service, then God has the kind of church that he can really use as we just take and serve the Lord. What's his calling on my life? Busy about that. And then the love and working well with one another. Now that's something that becomes special. And I think that the word assemble is so superior and so wonderful that sometimes when I'm in a place and somebody will pray and, and Lord bless our gathering and all, I, I cringe. I'm not saying they can't do that. I'm not that, I'm not wound that tight. Just mostly that tight. Because when I hear someone speak about this as a gathering, in my mind is that tarp and all those individual pieces of the bicycle. And I know an assembly is something entirely different. Now, admittedly, the writer tells us that it is the manner of some not uh, to forsake uh, the assembling together of the saints, but we're not to do that. And, and that whole number of people that... Uh, don't go to church and consider themselves to be Christians and maybe even are Christians and all, that, that, is a, uh, that characterizes uh, some even today. But I'll tell you, it's a great mistake. When a person says something like, I don't attend church because it doesn't do anything for me. Or they say, I, don't, I have my own relationship with God. I don't need church. That comes out of a very, very flawed understanding of Christianity. And the response to that is, has it ever occurred to you in the vastness of your spiritual maturity that church might be a place to give and not only to get? And has it ever occurred to you that the more spiritually mature you are, the more you will give than you will ever get from the assembly of the saints, but that something wonderful happens between an individual and God when that happens? It is its own reward. I've never known a single Christian, and I've known thousands of Christians since 1980, but I've never known a single Christian who does not regularly attend church with other Christians who has been able to maintain a dynamic, living, growing Christian life and influence for the kingdom of God. If that person exists, I've never met them. I'm not talking about people that are infirmed or elderly and at home and they have to watch things on TV or the computer or the radio or that kind of thing. I've never known where that forsaking of the assembling together of the saints didn't eventually translate into a very small, self-centered and self-focused Christian life. And you look at them 20 years later and you say to yourself, I can't believe what they have missed because they did not allow the growth that will occur and must occur and God forces to occur by virtue of us being in contact with one another, warts and all in provoking one another to love and to good works. There's something about Christian fellowship and Christian service that will not allow us 
to settle into a small, self-focused, self-centered life. I want to also say, and it's very important to me, and I'm just about done, never allow some failure in your life to ever keep you from Christian fellowship or assembling with the saints. That's That's when we run to church and ought to. Remember Peter on the morning of Jesus' crucifixion, he denies Jesus three times. As soon as Jesus is risen from the dead on the third day, and the top three things that he does is he finds Peter and privately restores him to fellowship and then does publicly the same thing later. He couldn't get to Peter during those three days prior to his resurrection because he was about some other pretty significant things. But the first moment he had to restore Peter back into fellowship with God, he did that. And that's what he wants to do in our lives as well. And I'll say also that a failure to assemble together with God's people puts a Christian in a place where we are a sitting duck for the devil and for spiritual warfare. I remember as a new Christian, this is my new Christian sermon, by the way, hearing a man, if I mentioned his name, many of you in the room would know it. But he spoke about as an illustration how that in the small villages in Africa, the poor villages there, how they would take the, village, the livestock that were part of the village and they would put them in a center pen in the village. And no metal wire or anything like that. They would take stakes, put them in the ground, sharp way out so that no predator could come and get in and get to the livestock that was so valuable to the village and, and destroy them, no lion. And he said, the lion comes is very clever. He comes to a place where he positions himself, knowing where the wind is, so that his scent goes downwind, so the animal, the livestock, can smell him. But the village can't. And then he knows how to growl in a low enough growl or rumble that the livestock can hear that rumble, but the village can't. And the animals start to get antsy, and pretty soon one of them gets panicked, jumps out of the pen, and that, that lion will allow that animal to get far enough way, away from the village before he attacks and kills it so as to not wake up the village and come and kill him. But once that animal is out of the safety of that pen, he has a field day with it, and it becomes a meal. And it's so true of the devil. I think about how many people separated from fellowship with God and the whole world of spiritual warfare and addiction and sin and bondage that becomes that person's portion because they've put themselves in a place to be especially vulnerable to the devil. Christian fellowship is very, very important And we are to exhort one another, he tells us, stir one another up to faithfulness to God and holiness, to doing great things for God. We can only do that as we're in contact with one another. And he tells us we're to do so ever the more as we see the day of Jesus' return nearing. And since that day is nearer than it's ever been before, this exhortation of Hebrews chapter 10 is more important to God's people than it ever has been before. Things are going to get wild in this world before it's all said and done. You said, I think, I th- I think it's already wild. <laughs> you think it's wild. We need each other. And we need the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and through one another's lives. And we need local fellowship, and we need the kingdom of God in a way that it's just beginning to dawn upon us as a part of the body of Christ.
And God knows we need it. And we need to be here in a place like this for all of that to happen. Any temptation to move away from God for any reason is to be met with these simple, clear, let us statements. Concerning God, let us draw near to God. Concerning ourselves, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And concerning others, let us consider one another. Just good, practical, rubber-meets-the-road instruction out of the beautiful theology that he had already laid down. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, for this passage. Thank you for the ministry of your Holy Spirit. The wind listeth where it will, and he blows where he wills. And we just pray, Lord, that everything that this passage is supposed to accomplish in each of our lives here this morning that that would be accomplished and not drowned out by the wall of sound and noise that we're about to head out into. Thank you, Lord, for your instruction. Thank you for the body of Christ. Thank you for Christian fellowship. Thank you for the kingdom of God. Thank you for prayer and worship. Thank you for the privilege of being a part of the body of Christ. And thank you, Father. And thank you, Jesus, for the price you paid to make it possible. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.